We are looking at Isaiah chapter 7. If you have your copy of scripture, I want to invite you to turn there. Isaiah chapter 7. Uh, ordinarily, we would do something of an Advent series beginning either the last Sunday of November or the first sun- Sunday of December, but with uh, some of our schedules and with my traveling schedule, um, I thought it would be best for us to just begin today and to have a focused sermon series on the incarnation of Christ from the prophets. Um, I have titled this series, The Spirit of Christmas Prophecy, a playoff of uh, Charles Dickens' Christmas Carol, The Spirit of Christmas Prophecy. And we're looking this morning at the first of three sermons on those Old Testament prophecies about the birth of Christ. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 7, and as you will know, we are going to focus in a special way at verse 14, but for the sake of context, I want us to read this morning Isaiah 7, 1 through 17. Isaiah 7, verses 1 through 17, as you read along with me this morning. Isaiah has just been commissioned by the Lord in chapter 6, and the Lord has given him that very difficult ministry. He says, I'm going to send you to my people, and the message that I give you is going to blind their eyes and harden their hearts. It's not a, it's not a joyful ministry Isaiah is going to enter in on. He is going to be a prophet of judgment. And yet sprinkled in those judgments are prophecies of restoration. Uh, Isaiah is going to stand in the uh, 700 B.C. period, and he will prophesy of the Babylonian captivity. He is a prophet of judgment, and yet he is also a prophet of restoration, exile and restoration, judgment and salvation. And the easiest way to understand the prophets, if no one's ever pointed this out to you, is that those are the two messages in all the prophets, judgment and salvation or exile and restoration. And so here as Isaiah begins his ministry in chapter 7, verse 1, we read, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of the people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. And the Lord said to Isaiah, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shehir Joshub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands at the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Ramalia. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up to Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king, in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord your God, it shall not stand, and it shall not, shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin, and within 65 years Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in the faith, and that might be better translated if you do not believe, 
you will not be firm at all. You will not be established. If you do not believe, you will not be established. Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil or choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, I wonder this morning if I told you two things about the incarnation of Christ what you would think. The first thing I would tell you this morning is that the birth of Jesus was very ordinary. There was nothing supernatural about the birth of Jesus. And I wonder what you would think if I told you this morning that everyone knows virgins don't conceive. I imagine some of you are like, what kind of Presbyterian church is this? You're getting your phones out. You're ready to email the elders. He just said the birth of Jesus was ordinary and virgins don't conceive. No, what I said was the birth of Jesus was not supernatural. The conception of Jesus in the womb of the virgin was supernatural. And what I said is everyone knows that virgins don't conceive because virgins don't conceive. Only one time in human history has a virgin ever conceived. And that's what makes Isaiah 7:14 such a remarkable prophecy. Here's 700 some years, probably closer to 750 years before Christ came into the world, the Lord through Isaiah gave that very clear prophecy of Emmanuel, God with us, that a virgin would conceive, that she would bear a son, and that that son's name would be God with us. A remarkable prophecy. If, if we didn't sing, O come, O come, Emmanuel, so much, if we didn't know this so much, we would be astonished that God in his wisdom had given such a clear and wonderful prophecy as he does. And yet, for all that we know about Isaiah 7.14 and its fulfillment in the uh, virgin conception of the Lord Jesus in the womb of Mary, for all that we know about it, for all that we sing about it, for all that we read about it, we may not know, and you may not know, the context in which it's given. It's actually a quite unusual context. This morning, as uh, we come to look at this, I want us to consider just two things. I want us to consider first the context of the Emmanuel prophecy, and then I want us to consider the content of the Emmanuel prophecy, the context and the content. Well, notice, as I have already said, Isaiah has begun his ministry. He has seen the Lord high and lifted up, the train of the Lord's robe filling the temple. He has heard the, the cherubim and the seraphim crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. He has received that commissioning from the Lord. Who will go for us? 
And he said, here am I. Send me. And the Lord says, I'll send you. But here's the message I'm going to send you with. You're going to go to these people. Keep on hearing, but don't hear. Keep on seeing, but don't see. You're going to make the eyes of these people blind. You're going to make their ears deaf so that they can't turn and be healed. Um, You're going to tear down because my people have rebelled greatly against me. And the king who was in power at that time, to whom Isaiah here first speaks after that commissioning, is King Ahaz. He will be the beginning of the end of the kingdom, as it were, uh, throughout much of the remainder of the Old Testament. He was an exceedingly wicked king. And so God has put his hand of discipline upon Ahaz and upon Judah. He was the king of the southern the southern kingdom. The kingdom had been divided. Israel to the north, Judah to the south. The kings, remember, came out of Judah. And, and God's hand of discipline is now upon that, that southern kingdom and upon his people in that kingdom. And there's a threat. And you'll notice that that threat is that two kings join together with a plan. Notice verse 3 that we're told, verse 2, that, that um, Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, king of Ramalia, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it. Um, and notice that uh, the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim. The northern kingdom has sided now with a heathen nation to destroy the southern kingdom. And, and so great a threat that Ahaz is terrified. Uh, the Lord will actually come to him and say, do not be afraid. Notice verse 4 through Isaiah, say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. And yet Ahaz is exceedingly fearful, and he is scheming, and he is plotting. He is trying to devise a way that he can prevent this attack. The Lord is dealing with Ahaz, the king. And Ahaz is a wicked, unbelieving king over God's people. He is not a wavering believer. He is an unbeliever. And the Lord is dealing with Ahaz specifically. The Lord is seeking Ahaz to come to a place where he will trust him. Notice, that's why he says to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps. He's essentially saying, Trust in the Lord. Don't, don't put your trust in political maneuvering or tactics. Don't put your trust in politics. Don't, don't trust in military might or power. Don't trust in your plotting or scheming. Don't trust in yourself. He's saying, trust in me. And he gives him every reason to trust in him. Notice verse 7, thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. He's saying, I am here to deliver. Now, what you may not understand at this point yet is that the Lord was committed to delivering the southern kingdom because, remember, God had established the kingdom. God had chosen David. God had entered into that covenant with David. God had made that oath that one of David's descendants would sit forever on the throne. And so God is more committed to his kingdom than Ahaz is. God is more committed, if I can say this this morning, to his church than you and I are. The Lord cares more about what he's doing and his kingdom than you ever will or I ever will. And 
the Lord is essentially telling Ahaz, I care about the throne that I have established more than you do. I don't want to see my people suffering. And, and yet the Lord is leading Ahaz to a place where he will be the king that he is supposed to be. And he is saying, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. These two kings, they, even if they stand on each other's shoulders, as it were, they're, they're very small and little, and my kingdom is great. And yet, notice the end of verse 9. I highlighted this in the reading. He says, if you do not believe, you will not be established. That what God is requiring of Ahaz, what he requires of us is that we believe him. We trust in him, that we take him at his word, that we know that his promises are sure. Ahaz had every reason to trust the Lord. He was only in office because God had made that covenant with David, and he was sitting on the throne of David at that time as the only king over Judah. Um, the Lord comes a second time to Ahaz. Notice verse 10, very interesting. We we don't know how much time elapses between verse 9 and verse 10, but there seems to be some period of time. And so the Lord sends Isaiah again, and, and Ahaz has not come to believe. He's probably been out there scheming, trying to figure out what he has to do to protect himself and, and Judah and the throne. And so the Lord comes a second time, and, and the Lord spoke to Ahaz, ask a sign of the Lord your God. Notice how, notice how condescending the Lord is. Notice how patient the Lord is. He is dealing with a wicked king sitting on the throne of Judah. And yet he comes a second time and he says, ask me a sign. If you don't believe me, I'll show you that I mean what I'm saying. He says, ask a sign. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as heaven. Essentially says, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it to show you that I am absolutely... Um, absolutely committed to my covenant promises and what I say I'm going to do. And you'll notice that Ahaz is defiant, verse 12. Now, on the surface, this seems humble. There are lots of people that say things like this. Notice what Ahaz said. He says, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Sounds, sounds pious on the surface. I'm not going to put the Lord to the test, but the Lord had told him, put me to the test. And so for him to say this is very much in, in the, the vein of Satan twisting Scripture. The scripture says, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Remember, Jesus quotes that in the temptation in the wilderness. Ahaz sounds like he's saying that, but what Ahaz is actually doing is saying, I don't want the Lord to intervene. I don't care about the Lord. Who is the Lord I don't need a sign. And so the Lord says in our verse, through Isaiah, the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Now, the context of this prophecy really tees up the response to the prophecy. Um, Ahaz was called to believe the Lord, to take God at his word, to trust in him, to cast himself on him, to know that God is absolutely committed to his covenant promises and that he will never cease to be faithful to fulfill his covenant promises. Ahaz had every reason to believe. We have every reason to believe. And yet many people, 
hear these things and never trust in the Lord. Many people sit Sunday after Sunday after Sunday in church, checking their watch, sighing, checked out because they just want to get out. And the Lord is saying to you this morning, if you will believe, you will be established. If you will take me at my word, if you will trust in my covenant promises, I will establish you spiritually. Now, um, you know that this prophecy is about Christ. Um, we know that because Matthew will cite this over in Matthew chapter 1, uh, in the section running from chap- verses 18 to 25, when the angel comes to Joseph. And, and the angel says, Mary, your betrothed, is with child. And, and Joseph wants to put her away. Um, why does Joseph want to put her away? Because he's assumed that she's been unfaithful. He's not had relations with Mary. She's a virgin. He assumes she's not. That's the only assumption that you would draw. I mentioned at the outset, everyone knows that virgins don't conceive. In, in, the, in the 19th century, in the 20th century, there were loads of public figures and intellectuals and theologians who said things like, virgins don't conceive. This is a myth. Everyone knows that virgins don't conceive. And C.S. Lewis, in his book on miracles, says that very thing. Listen to this. He says, you will hear people say, the early Christians believed that Christ was the son of a virgin, but we know that's a scientific impossibility. Lewis says, such people seem to have an idea that belief in miracles arose at a period when men were so ignorant of the course of nature they did not perceive a miracle to be contrary to it. But notice this. He says, when Joseph discovered that his fiancée was going to have a baby, he not only unnaturally decided to repudiate her. Why? He knew just as well as any modern gynecologist that in the ordinary course of nature, women do not have babies unless they have lain with men. Joseph knew that virgins don't conceive. Mary knew that virgins don't conceive. Mary said when the angel greeted her, how can these things be since I've never known a man? Uh, Mary and Joseph knew everything that modern scientific folks know. And yet the Lord had said here in Isaiah 7:14, the virgin will conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. And Matthew tells us that his name means God with us. Now, as we consider the content of this prophecy, I want to I point out that you see this sort of juxtaposition here. You see on the one hand the Lord saying to Ahaz, I'll deliver you if you trust in me. And then at the end of this section, in those latter verses that we read in the reading this morning, he says, oh, it's going to happen to you. The judgment is going to come. Isaiah himself is going to be carried away by the Assyrians. And actually, Ahaz begins the long process of of the loss of the kingdom in Israel. It's very interesting. If you look from here on, this is the beginning of the end. There will come a point where there is no more king in Israel. And we see this in Matthew's genealogy of Jesus. That long, that long list of individuals from Abraham to Christ and the better part of them from David on are those various kings. And, and after Ahaz, Matthew notes 
that there's going, that there was that Babylonian captivity that the prophet said was going to happen when Israel was going to be carried away when there was no king. And it looked like God's promises failed. It looked like God was not going to make good on his promises. And yet, that genealogy tells us that God was going to make good. Um, it's interesting when Christ is born, he's born to an unknown carpenter who you may or may not know was rightfully in line to be a king. He was born of Judah. This is Judah to whom God is prophesying. And Jesus is born in that line of those descendants. In fact, Jesus is in the line of Ahaz. He's not like Ahaz, but Ahaz is in his genealogy. And when he comes, it doesn't look like there's a kingdom. The kingdom looks like it's been extinguished with the fall of Jerusalem in 586. And the monarchy seems to be gone. And yet what the Lord is embedding in the middle of that situation is that he is going to one day send a king, and that king is going to come through a virgin. He's going to be virgin-born. And he's going to have to be virgin-born because he is going to have to be sinless. He is going to be descended from Adam, but he is not going to be of Adam. He's not going to be like Adam. But he is going to come. He's going to rule and reign. God is going to make good on his promise that he gave David in 2 Samuel 7 so long before God is going to fulfill what he said. And he's going to do it in a way that no one can really quite understand or see. This is the marvelous thing about the Emmanuel prophecy. God says here to Ahaz, ask a sign. And then he says through Isaiah to Judah, I'm, the Lord is going to give you a sign. Let me, let me say this this morning. What kind of sign is a virgin birth? No one knows that that's even a possibility supernaturally at this point. Who would ever know if, if you saw a woman who was pregnant, if you saw Mary pregnant, that she had been a virgin? That's not the kind of sign that people want. Who would ever know that a man nailed to a cross is the savior of the world? It's not the kind of sign that people want. You see, God is giving a sign that you have to receive by faith. It's only received by faith. We trust in him by faith. We walk by faith, not by sight. He does these things, as Sinclair Ferguson says, out of the eyes, the prying eyes of men. You know, this Prophecy is also God promising to bring light out of darkness. And one of the reasons why we love candlelight services is because we love that the message of the incarnation of Christ is really the light has broken into the darkness. Uh, here, Israel and Judah are in darkness. Judah is in grave danger. The judgment of God, the discipline of God is upon them, and yet out of darkness, God is going to bring light. That's a good word for us. Out of the darkness of our sin, Christ shines the light of his grace and gospel. That's the message of Isaiah 7.14. Um, and the virgin will conceive. There's been so much debate over how to translate this word throughout church history. 
Is it to be translated young woman? Is it to be translated virgin? Well, very simply put, the Holy Spirit in Matthew 1 tells us that Isaiah was prophesying about the virgin conception of Christ, that the Holy Spirit would overshadow Mary, that as, as that cloud came down on the temple in the Old Testament and God came down overshadowing the temple, God would overshadow the womb of the virgin and he would come and he would put himself in the womb of the virgin. And that's why his name, the first name that we get for the Redeemer, think of this, the first name in all of Isaiah's prophecy is Emmanuel, God with us. That is the greatest need that you and I have, God with us. That is your greatest need. That is my greatest need, is God with you. And the Lord says to Isaiah, he is going to be in Christ. Um, Sinclair Ferguson says, the seed of Abraham long promised, the seed of David long promised, is himself God. But not simply God over us or God governing us, but God among us, God with us. Isn't that amazing? He doesn't say, I will be over you. He doesn't say, I will be your king. He is the king. He doesn't say, I will govern you. He doesn't say, I will draw near and tell you what to do. He is God with us. He is God for us. Think about the mystery and the marvel of the incarnation. The infinite and eternal Son of God would leave all the glories of heaven to come near and dwell with people like us whose hearts are filthy and black and rebellious by nature. He would become God with us, God among us. Um, I sometimes think that all these things are so commonplace to us that we're not amazed by them anymore. It should amaze us It should amaze us that the Lord said that he is going to knit a body together in the womb of the virgin to become man, fully God, fully man, in one person, to redeem us. I read this week, I thought this was interesting, because many people like the ethical teachings of Jesus, but they don't like the supernatural parts of Scripture. And someone pointed out that that. You can't appreciate the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew's Gospel if you don't appreciate the virgin birth in Matthew's Gospel, the same Matthew who wrote it. The one who would stand and give the Sermon on the Mount was the one who was knit together in the womb of the virgin. Ferguson says this, we are meant to be staggered. We tend to pride ourselves that we know this so well. We say it doesn't stagger me that he was virgin born. He says it staggered Joseph that he was virgin born. It staggered Mary that he was virgin-born. She pondered these things, Luke says. It staggered Matthew, and it ought to stagger us. We ought to understand that this is a singularity in the history of the universe. This is unique. Listen, this is unique, a singularity in the history of the universe. This is Emmanuel. This is God entering our world. God entering the world as man. Ferguson says, of course, God has been present working in history, governing history, but what happens here is that he actually becomes a part of history. He says he becomes the tiniest part of history, 
The one who threw the stars into their places, who created the vast cosmos, is coming into the womb of the Virgin Mary through the secret work of the Holy Spirit in the sheer tininess of embryonic form, in the total dependence of his humanity upon his mother, in the long months in the fetal position, and then coming forth from his mother's womb in a cave, back of a house. This is the mystery of the incarnation. This is the supernatural work of God. You know, I don't know why so many have had a hard time believing in the virgin birth, except by nature our hearts are obstinately unbelieving. Ahaz didn't come off his unbelief. The Lord gave him this word. He didn't believe. Israel was carried off. He was not established. Um, You must believe in the virgin birth of Christ. You must believe in the deity of Christ. That's an absolute must if you're going to have eternal life. You know, John, in the prologue of his gospel, makes that statement, and I've always, I've always found it shocking in thinking about John writing it, what he must have thought. Uh, John the Baptist was a witness to the light John says that was the true light coming into the world to give light to everyone in darkness. And then he says he was in the world, and the world was made through him, but the world did not know him. He was in the world. The world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And then John says he came to his own, to Israel, and his own did not receive him. The better part of people that saw Jesus did not trust him. They saw in the flesh Emmanuel. They did not trust him. They did not believe in him. And yet John goes on to say, but as many as believe in him, to them he gave the right to be children of God. That's what you're called to this morning. You are called to trust in Emmanuel. Now, of course, it's not just his being knit together in the womb that encourages you to trust him. It's knowing what he came into the world to do. He came into the world. He was born of the virgin in order to live the life you couldn't live and to die the death you deserve to die. And, you know, it's remarkable. I've mentioned that light broke into darkness. That's, that is the Emmanuel prophecy, that light is going to shine into darkness. And when Christ came, he brought the light of life, John says. And the darkness did not overcome it, but on the cross, that light was extinguished because of your sin and my sin. Darkness covered the land, and the light, as it were, was extinguished on the cross under the wrath of God because of what we deserve, so that he would shine the light of the gospel into our hearts, so that he could say to you what he says to the disciples before he ascends to heaven, lo, I am with you always even till the end of the age. He is God with us. Lo, I am with you always. And that means that through the substitutionary death of Jesus on the cross, God with us becomes God for us. And you and I so desperately need God for us rather than God against us. I want to say this this morning. There's only two options. Either God is for you because you're trusting in Christ or God is against you. There's no neutrality, there's no middle ground, there's no third way. Either God is for you because you're truly trusting in Emmanuel, 
or God is against you. And that is a frightening thought. And yet in the midst of all of the experience of our sin and failings, the darkness that we've known in our hearts, in the midst of all of that, God has said, I have come to give light. I am God with you. I am God for you. I want to read this last statement to you from Ferguson this morning. When we think about the virgin birth and what it means that uh, God would enter into this world as fully God and fully man in Christ, it's, it is one of the great works. It's as great a work as creation out of nothing. And listen to this. Ferguson says, yes, it is an amazing supernatural miracle. But like God's great works, creation, incarnation, crucifixion, resurrection, done safe from men's prying eyes, he brings light out of darkness. You know what's interesting? Let me interject this. Most of us do darkness safe from men's prying eyes. Most of us are engaged in darkness safe from men's prying eyes. And yet God does his great work safe from men's prying eyes. Ferguson says he brings light out of darkness. He brings his son into the dark womb of the virgin. That's amazing. Now, if you are trusting in the Lord Jesus, this ought to be a word of encouragement to you. If God was faithful to fulfill that sign in bringing Christ that he gave to wicked Ahaz, and he has given us all of the revelation of Jesus in the new covenant, how much reason we have to keep trusting him, to hold fast to him, to follow him, to cry out for the light that he is and that he brought into the world. What reasons we have to trust him, not to doubt when our sin tempts us to say God must be against me because I feel that he's against me. We go to Emmanuel and we say, Lord, you became God with us so that you would be God for us. But you have to go to him. I'd say to you this morning, if you've never gone to him, today is the day of salvation. He holds forth this promise of the virgin-born incarnate God-man, Emmanuel, God with us. He holds this forth so that you would trust him, just like he held it out to Ahaz. And there is a word of warning if we don't trust him. The same judgment that came on Judah will come, but will come eternally to all who are not in him. And yet for those who are trusting him, he is God for us, who atoned for our sins and was raised to give us the light of light. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says to the church. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, these are great and awesome truths, and we do pray that you would astonish us by them. Lord, we pray that you would cause our minds to be overwhelmed with the wonder of the supernatural conception of the eternal Son in the womb of the Virgin. Father, would you astonish us with the fact that you are the covenant Lord who keeps your covenant promises, the God who alone can bring light out of darkness. And we pray this morning that you would shine the light of Christ into the dark recesses of the hearts of every man, woman, boy, and girl here. We pray, our God, that you would make us to know and believe that you are God with us and that 
in the death and resurrection of Christ that you have shown yourself to be God for us. And so, Lord, would you do these things for each man and woman and boy and girl present here? Would you cause these truths to rest on us and to produce joy in us as we consider the wonder of the incarnation of your Son? So would you do this in us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.